1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with uh, with which I have been entrusted. And here we end uh, the reading of God's Word. Um, as we uh, as we look at this passage, and uh, as I'm shifting over to my sermon notes here, we're we're going to be uh, dealing with what I call Paul's first order of business. After the fatherly greeting of verses 1 and 2, Paul gets right down to business with the reason for Timothy's stay in Ephesus. From this passage, we know that the letter was written specifically for Timothy's ministry in that church. But of course, the letter has applications far beyond its original purpose. It's a good question to ask first. What was going on in Ephesus and also going on in the in the apostolic church because the the situation at Ephesus was not unique situation in Ephesus was being repeated in church after church after church that the apostle Paul had planted with his fellow travelers his fellow workers like Timothy and Titus and and Luke and and others who were traveling with him they planted churches but one of the things we we often gloss over even though it's clear in Scripture, we don't pay a lot of attention to it. What was happening in the apostolic church was as these churches were planted and began to grow, they were almost completely overwhelmed by false teachers. The false teachers were like wolves waiting at the edge of the woods, waiting to find a vulnerable lamb and then ready to pounce, and false teachers abounded in the early church, the church even of the apostles' time. It's kind of a scary thought, but there were there were times in the early church's history where the, the heretics, if you will, outnumbered the faithful. Uh, even getting into the third and fourth century, where we had the, the great doctrinal controversies over the nature of Christ, over the nature of the Holy Spirit, Trinity, and so forth, uh, leading up to a council like the Nicene Council. Uh, during that period of time, the Arian heresy was the majority view. We often don't even think about that. 
But that's what was happening in the apostolic church. Paul makes this clear about Ephesians, the Ephesian church, because the passage tells us that the church was in danger from those who were teaching, quote, different doctrines, unquote. And we're going to come back to that, the significance of Paul's use of that term, different doctrines. So there are three things that Paul mentions that could be grouped here uh, under these different doctrines. First of all, he talks about myths. Uh, there was a, there were stories. Everybody likes to tell a story, but these false teachers were telling myths, false stories, as part of their of their teaching. Now, why why do we do that? Well, let me uh, why why would Paul warn against that? And why were these false teachers teaching myths? You know, one of the important parts of understanding what we believe is understanding the history behind it. Much of the Bible is devoted to history. History is our stories of origin, our accounts of God's work among his people, and so forth. Well, false teachers and false theologies have their own set of myths. You might say in our modern day, the theory of evolution is a myth uh, that is our origin myth for secular humanistic thinking. We reject creation, but we adopt uh, uh, evolution as our myth of origin. Well, in the ancient world, things were not that different. They had a mythology that they used to promote or give the history behind their religious ideas. Another thing that Paul mentions is endless genealogies, and this is often associated with the heresy of Gnosticism. Uh, the Gnostics believed that there were genealogies of uh, demigods uh, that descended from one from another and so forth, and that these demigods, uh, they, they kind of tracked them. This was also part of their mythology. Uh, they tracked the descent of these demigods. Ultimately, there was a demigod named Jehovah who was actually bad in, in, in Gnostic thinking uh, because he created the material world. Gnostic thinking believed that spiritual, the spiritual realm was good, the material realm was evil. Jehovah created the material realm, and in Gnostic thinking, Jehovah becomes the origin of evil. That's kind of scary thought, isn't it? But these were some of the things that were floating around even in the early church. The third thing that Paul talks about, and we're going to talk about this the next time we come back to 1 Timothy, is this issue of the ignorant teachings on the law. These people would make very uh, confident assertions about the law of God, and yet they didn't even know what they were talking about, according to Paul. They were misusing the law. We'll talk about what it means to when Paul says the law is good when you use it lawfully, that is, when you use it how it was in the way that it was in, intended to be used. So these are the three things that Paul groups together under that, you know, different doctrine heading. And he's warning Timothy, tell people in the church to stop teaching this. That's a, you know, we, last week we talked about Timothy, uh, and uh, if Timothy had a particular problem, it was that he, 
he tended to be somewhat shy, perhaps. It was probably associated with his, his youthfulness and perhaps inexperience. So there were two great heresies uh, that uh, were very prominent in the apostolic church. Uh, the first one was legalism, and, and this might also connect to that ignorant misuse of the law. Uh, we know that Paul's ministry was plagued by people who were legalists, uh, who believed that you needed to be circumcised in order to be truly saved and, and welcomed into the church. Uh, that was a, a type of legalism. And also that uh, what I mentioned before was the, the heresy of Gnosticism uh, that arose uh, early in the church's history and uh, became very prominent in the church of the latter part of the first century, early into the second century. Ultimately, Gnosticism was, uh, was dealt a fatal blow by one of the church fathers named Irenaeus who cataloged all the different flavors of Gnosticism and then devastated them by teaching what the Bible actually, by, by writing about what the, actual, uh, what the Bible actually said. He wrote a book uh, called Against Heresies, which was a major victory for the gospel and for, uh, for the church. Understand this, that the early church was threatened again, to be overwhelmed by these and other false teachings. Even if we go outside the writings of the Apostle Paul, we look at Paul, John, Peter, Jude, all the writers of the New Testament, they all, in their letters, confront the issues of false teaching and false teachers coming into the church. That's why it's so important for Paul to tell Timothy, First off, this is, this is the reason why this is the first order of business. The very life of the church is being threatened by false teachers. In God's providence, the church fought back. Paul fought back throughout his entire ministry. We have a history of the church of Ephesus, and even when you go to the book of Revelation uh, that's written at the end of the first century, you find that the church of Ephesus while it had a particular fault, and, and Jesus says about the church that you, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love, he still commends the church for being doctrinally uh, on top of things, doctrinally aware, and it had no tolerance for the false teachers at that time. Now, that comes at the end of the first century, this uh, this is written in the middle of the first century, and uh, so we can kind of get a, a sense that Timothy took these words to heart. Uh, we also know that the Apostle John was at the church of Ephesus for a while, that uh, Aquila and Priscilla and uh, Apollos were also there at the church in Ephesus. So they had a, a long history of sound teaching uh, that beat back, if you will, the, the influence of these of these false teachers and heresies. Now, I said we'd talk a little bit about what it means, what Paul meant when he talked about different doctrines. And he tells Timothy to beware of, the, of these different doctrines and also that he should charge people not to teach different doctrines. This brings us into a, a concept that we sometimes talk about, but it's a concept that's also woven into one of our 
uh, one of our creeds, the Nicene Creed, and that is that the foundation, the, the doctrinal foundation of the church comes to us from the writings of the Old Testament prophets and from the revelation that God gave through the New Testament apostles. Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, listen to this next part. This household of God, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows like into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice what Paul says there, the foundation of this household that is being built this household of God, uh, the foundation is the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, the apostles were the instruments that God used to, gave, to give the New Testament version of the church a doctrinal foundation. The apostles were the missionaries. They were the, the, the ones through whom God spoke uh, in giving his word. Similarly, in the Old Testament, the prophets serve that function. But above both the prophets and the apostles is Jesus Christ himself, who is the great prophet in his messianic role as, as the Messiah. One of his messianic offices is the prophet, the office of the prophet. And he speaks God's word authoritatively. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, remember, in that famous opening passage, God spoke to us many times and in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his own son. So what Paul is saying here is, what is different doctrine? Well, it's doctrine, it's teaching that is different from what we have received from the apostles, from the prophets, and from Jesus Christ himself. In other words, it is different from what has God has given to us in his revelation, in his word. By the way, in the Old Testament, just a, a little side note here, in the Old Testament there's a, a similar passage here. Uh, it's found in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8, verses uh, 19 through 20. In Isaiah chapter 8, uh, Isaiah is confronting an issue that there were false teachers in Israel, uh, Judah, and they were telling people that, they were telling the people that they should consult mediums and spiritists and and necromancers and so forth of course thing specifically forbidden by god as as an abomination uh against his holiness but isaiah writes uh, actually god speaking through isaiah says this when they say to you inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter should not a people inquire of their god should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And now the, here's the point here. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light. There is no knowledge. There is no light. There is no revelation here. 
if they don't speak according to the word and the the teachings that have already been laid down on in the word, they have no light. Don't pay attention to them. And so in Isaiah's case and in Paul's case, what they're saying is God has given us a revelation through his servants. It's been written down. It's been preserved. And it becomes the standard by which we judge all other teachings. If they don't teach according to what we have been given, they are false teachers. Uh, In the Nicene Creed, one of the statements that we affirm in the Nicene Creed is, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And there are four qualities of the church that are named there. The oneness of the church, there is only one church, all right? many churches of Jesus Christ. There's not many bodies of Christ. There's only one. The oneness of the church is founded in uh, the oneness of the Redeemer and in the unity of God's uh, plan of of election and salvation. Uh, The holiness of the church, uh, God has called the church to be holy, and he has made it holy through the work of his Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the church is Catholic in that it is universal, not not confined to one nation as it was in the Old Testament, but now uh, the church is uh, universally present in every nation across the face of the earth. And finally, the church is apostolic. And when the creed says that we believe in an apostolic church, this is what it means. It's We believe in a church that is founded on the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. And we have a line of succession, a succession of apostolic teaching that is preserved in the church. Uh, In another passage that we're going to cover later on in our study of of Timothy, Paul is is going to tell Timothy to to, uh, take faithful men and teach them what Timothy has received, and that those faithful men uh, will in turn teach other men. And and Paul says, guard the good deposit that was given to you. Uh, guard this treasure of apostolic teaching uh, and transmit it in its, in its purity to other people who will then do the same. So you have really, Christ gives the gospel message to Paul. Paul teaches young men like Timothy the same message And he tells them that they are to pass this message on to others who will, in turn, pass it on yet again to another generation. Uh, Notice what's missing in this. Paul does not say, I want you to really work hard at making improvements in what we have been given. I, I want you to work really hard at developing new insights and new ways of thinking. No. Take what you have been given and teach it and warn people who are straying from uh, straying into different doctrines, warn them to stop doing that. I know this sounds boring because innovation and new insights and, and new teachings are really exciting. One of the things we see in church history is that whenever some new teacher comes up with different doctrines, immediately attracts a large following. People are attracted to this. People are, are looking for something new, something exciting. Uh, and, uh, you know, sticking with apostolic doctrine and, 
sticking with what we have received seems kind of boring and uninteresting, but it is also the way that God preserves his church, one way in which God preserves his church. Now, what's the point of this all? This, this uh, urging people not to teach different doctrine? What's the point of enforcing a, a certain degree, a high degree, of doctrinal strictness in the church? Well, Paul says in, in verse 5 of our passage, he says this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, strictness in doctrinal teaching is not so you can put sit back and talk with your, you know, your theological buddies and say, boy, we really have nailed this theology. We we're so good. I mean, I mean, look at all those other churches out there. They're all they're all floating along in strange teachings. But we've got it nailed down, don't we, guys? Yeah, no. The purpose of good theology is not just to have good theology. The, the practical purpose in the life of the church for good doctrine, apostolic teaching, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Good doctrine should lead to good living, is a way of putting it. There's that connection. And, and you see that in, in many, so many of Paul's letters where he has a, a doctrinal focus in the first part of his letter, and in the second part of his letter, he has a practical application. Good theology leads to good living. Uh, from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. By the way, and, and we'll get back to this next time we t when we talk about the misuse and the proper use of the law, what is the law all about? Well, what are the two great commandments? Uh, what are the two tables of the law? To love God and to love your neighbor. What is the aim of this charge of doctrinal purity and doctrinal strictness? It is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, that's where, that's where this comes together. Maintaining apostolic teaching, maintaining the teaching of the church founded on the prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ as the, as the chief cornerstone, it's supposed to result in love. It's supposed to result in good living, not just theological purity. And maybe this is what happened, you know, when, when the Apostle John uh, writes those letters to the churches and he writes to Ephesus, well, good, you're doing something right. You're discerning false teachers. You're rejecting the false teachers, but you've lost your first love, They, which in a way is saying, You've lost this connection between doctrinal purity and love that proceeds from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And you need to bring that back. That's not a small thing. That means you've lost the whole point of your doctrinal integrity. Well, brothers and sisters, how are we doing here? Think about your own commitment to God's Word. 
Think about how that commitment to God's Word and to pure teaching, apostolic teaching, should be leading you to a greater degree of fulfilling the commandment to love God and to love your neighbor. If it's not doing that, you've lost the connection, kind of like we lose our Wi-Fi connection here. If you're not making that connection between doctrinal purity and good living, you've lost the connection, and you're in danger. You're in danger. That's when theology goes bad. That's when our theology, well, it might be sound theology, it might be orthodox theology, but it's not serving the right purpose in your life or in the life of the church. Good teaching leads to good living. One of the things that uh, we see throughout history is this, too. False teachers fail this test. If the goal of this charge is to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, I've, I've noticed this in, in dealing with strange doctrines that always seem to want to come into the church, and that is those who promote these new ideas often have real problems of the heart and the conscience and their faith. And they, there, there seems to be a correlation on the one hand between good doctrine and good teaching. There also seems to be a correlation on the other hand between bad doctrine and bad living. Uh, the heretics of the early church were also notorious for being subversive of good morals subversive of true biblical love. And they started their own little cultic movements and drew people away from Christ. And that is something that we still need to be aware of today. You know, I mentioned last week uh, when we started this that we're going to make, make applications from time to time as, as our church is in the midst of searching for a new pastor. We're going to make applications to, well, what should you be looking for in the man who comes next to fill your pulpit, to fill the role of your pastor? And I would say this. Here's an application that we can lead from, uh, bring out from this passage. Your new pastor should keep his eyes on the goal. What is the goal? The goal, the aim of our charge, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That should be his goal. And in order to reach that goal, your new pastor must be a man committed to apostolic doctrine, to, to staying away from different doctrines, different teachings. His faith, his teaching needs to be rooted in the prophets and the apostles and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And he needs to be content with those things and not going off after strange, new, different doctrines. Uh, you might think, well, that goes without saying, but you'd be surprised. No, it needs to be said. It needed to be said in the first century, and it needs to be said in the 21st century. Keep your eyes on the goal, not on popular acceptance. The heretics were very popular. Not popular acceptance, but faithfulness to the teaching and faithfulness to this goal, this overarching goal, is what a quality that you should be looking for 
in your new pastor. Well, uh, I think we need to bring this to an end. I'm not sure how long our signal is going to hold up. Uh, so please join me in prayer as we conclude this uh, message. And uh, then I'll turn it back to Matt to close the service and uh, take a short break. And then we'll reconvene uh, shortly afterwards for the congregational meeting. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the technology. It's not perfect, but we give thanks for it. Uh, that enables us to uh, continue to worship, even in spite of the, the difficulties of the weather. Uh, we pray, Father, that this time together, though unusual, would be a blessing to, to your people who have gathered today in your church on your day. Lord, we pray that you would watch over us and care for us in the coming week, and we pray for the church as it continues to look for a new pastor. We pray that the, the, the Word of God itself would guide this search, uh, and that you would bring together with the church and uh, their, their new pastor, whoever it might be, you would bring such a person here who is committed to and content with the teachings we have received from the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus Christ himself. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.